Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. Yet another busy week for financial crime. They all seem to be, really. There's news of coordinated action against Russia cyber criminals by the Australian, US and UK authorities on money laundering. There have been a range of updates to the law in the United Kingdom. And we'll end this week with the usual range of cyber attack news. Some interesting stuff there this week. Actually, there's interesting stuff there virtually every week. Lots to get on with, so let's crack on. As usual, I have linked the main stories in the podcast description. We'll start with sanctions in the European Union, where the bloc is understood to be in the process of formulating its 13th round of sanctions. While detail is a little bit thin on the ground at the moment, the focus is believed to be around enforcement with a target on circumvention of the sanctions with the EU looking at its own members as well as third countries. In fact, there's a bit more to be said on enforcement because I did say last year that they were probably running out of things to sanction, so focus would probably shift to enforcement and so it would seem something I've got to say in a moment. Further, there are more trade sanctions which could also be added as part of this 13th round together with enhanced designations. There remains room for manoeuvre, but presumably there can't be much room left, clearly. But, you know, you never know. They make it imaginative. More on this story in the coming weeks, since, well, the bloc is understood to be wanting to get it agreed over the next four to five weeks. The European Council has also sanctioned six entities in light of the, quote, gravity of the situation in Sudan, where fighting is ongoing between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces and their respective affiliated militias. Link to the press release to that is in the podcast description. Now, a little coordinated action, as I mentioned in the intro. In the UK, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office has updated the designations list with six additions to the Counterterrorism International Financial Sanctions Regime, four additions to the Yemen Financial Sanctions Regulations, and one designation to the Cyber Financial sanctions regulations. Now that is the area where there is a bit of coordination. That particular cyber designation is a Russian national, Alexander Gennadievich Ermakov. More on him later. For what it's worth, the US has also sanctioned this individual, and it's all down to the work at the head of the organisation which hacked Medibank in Australia. The Australian action, for reasons which will become clear, I've reserved for the cyber attack roundup at the end of the podcast. Nevertheless, the links to the UK notices, the consolidated list and the cyber sanctions can be found in the podcast description, along with the announcement from the US Office of Foreign Assets Control. Staying with the US, which has announced the designation of Ansarallah, better known as the Houthis, pursuant to Executive Order 13224, linked to the designation and the Executive Order can be found in the podcast description. Now, we've had a bit of coordinated action. Here's a bit more coordinated action, again, 
from the US, UK and Australian governments in announcing new sanctions against key figures in the financial networks of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad. This is from the US Department of the Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, press release. The, quotes action targets networks of Hamas-affiliated financial exchanges in Gaza, their owners and associates, and particularly financial facilitators that have played key roles in funds transfers, including cryptocurrency transfers from the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps CODS force to Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza. Concurrent with OFAC's designations, the United Kingdom and Australia are also placing sanctions on key Hamas officials and facilitators. Links to the press releases from the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office in the UK and the OFAC press release in the US can be found in the podcast description. Now, I did mention at the beginning a bit of news on enforcement. I said that the 13th round of sanctions, which is being negotiated by the European Union, will have a bit more focus on enforcement. Well, in the Netherlands this week, it's been announced that police have arrested three individuals concerning an international smuggling network, which was aimed to help Russia to circumvent the sanctions regimes which have been variously imposed on that nation. Quotes, investigations, this is Europol's quote, uh, press release, investigations revealed that a Dutch company was ordering dual-use goods from Germany and then shipping them directly to Latvia and Lithuania. From there, the goods would cross the border into Russia. The link to the Europol press release is in the podcast description. Now, in the UK, bouncing around a bit this week, another notice in the form of an alert from the National Crime Agency, the NCA. The alert concerns sanctions evasion through the use of artwork storage facilities. The sector should, quotes, conduct regular due diligence checks to understand any change in a client's circumstances or those of elites they may represent. High net worth individuals, such as Russian oligarchs, hold art in specialist storage facilities for a range of reasons, including secure storage of art as an investment or as a store of value for tax benefits. It is known that criminals, including sanctioned individuals, are exploiting these services to evade sanctions and launder the proceeds of crime. Inadequate or irregular due diligence checks open the door for criminals or corrupt professional service providers to circumvent legislation, putting the sector at risk and undermining the sanctions regime the link to that full press release from the National Crime Agency in the UK, together with the alert, can be found in the podcast description. Now, finally on sanctions this week, there's been quite a bit of news on sanctions this week. It doesn't seem to want to give up its prominence. But finally, this week on sanctions, we have a look at a couple of stories related to Russian oil sales and the price cap. Price cap has been enforced for a while, of course, and there's been a bit of a focus on it recently. There's been a couple of enforcement actions, which I've mentioned in previous episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly, and this news, which comes out this week. So, first, the Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air has published the findings of research around the oil price cap imposed following the meeting of the G7 in 2022. According to the Centre, quotes, despite the EU 
slash G7 countries actions uh, sanctions on Russian oil, a majority of vessels carrying Russian oil and oil products are owned and or insured in the EU and G7 countries. Now, in terms of the key findings of this document, quotes, in the 12 months since the oil price cap, that was the 5th of December 2022, 46.4 billion euros of Russian oil has been transported on tankers using UK protection and indemnity insurance. 33% of all Russian oil by volume was transported on tankers insured in the UK since the sanctions were implemented until early November 2023. And a majority of the Russian oil tankers carry, or oil carried by tankers insured in the UK was crude oil, 31%, which was worth 14.4 billion euros, followed by diesel, which was 22%, worth 10.3 billion euros. I've linked the research from the centre's website in the podcast description. Secondly, and finally, Russia has moved ahead of Saudi Arabia in supplying crude oil to China. The increased availability of alternative shipping and insurance options to beat Western sanctions on Russian oil seem to have created temptation too great for the Chinese to resist. In fact, it's not only the Chinese if you look at the data. I suspect the US will once again attempt its soft convincement of China to drop Russia as a supplier, but I doubt that China will be that keen to listen. But you never know. That's it for the sanctions news this week. Now, on to a little bit of fraud news. Not a, not a tremendous amount of it, just a little bit of fraud news. And that fraud news starts in Ukraine, where it's been reported that a former member of the parliament, uh, Dmitro Kolesnikov has been found guilty of receiving compensation for housing rent of around $20,000 at the High Anti-Corruption Court of Ukraine. Kolesnikov acknowledged his wrongdoing and agreed to pay $27,000 to the armed forces of Ukraine. He also received a suspended three-year prison term and a ban from holding public office for one year. This is part of a wider crackdown on corruption, which the Ukrainian authorities have been engaged in alongside its defence from the Russian invasion. The other piece of fraud news this week broke quite late and it concerns news out of the United Kingdom relating to Michelle Moan, who is a peer of the realm in the United Kingdom, a member of the Conservative Party. She sits, or she certainly takes their whip in the, common, uh, in the House of Lords. It's reported that... She has had assets valued at approximately £75 million frozen or restrained by a court order. The order has been made while the National Crime Agency continues to investigate alleged fraud in relation to the supply of defective electric, uh, medical equipment which was supplied to the National Health Service in the UK at the height of the pandemic. Now, the medical equipment was alleged not to be fit for purpose and that there may be moves afoot to seek to get to the root of the issue with that particular contract. Now, The Guardian in the UK reports that it's part of a consensual process involving, involving Moan and her partner, someone called Douglas Barrowman. Now, 
I've had a look at all the main websites you'd expect. There's nothing on the NCA website. Couldn't find anything on the CPS, the Crown Prosecution Service website, or the Serious Fraud Office. But the mainstream media seems to have picked up the story from the Financial Times, which broke it. So it's got a high degree of credence. Worth following this one. Should know more over the weekend. We'll certainly keep an eye on it. Now, to money laundering news. Money laundering news this week starts in, of all unlikely places, Iran. It's been reported across a range of media outlets that the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, has cut a little slack to the Iranian authorities on Recommendation 7 of the FATF 40. The text of Recommendation 7 reads as follows. 7. Targeted financial sanctions related to proliferation. Countries should implement targeted financial sanctions to comply with United States Security Council resolutions relating to the prevention, suppression and disruption of proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and its financing. These resolutions require countries to freeze without delay the funds or other assets of and to ensure that no funds and other assets are made available directly or indirectly to or for the benefit of any person or entity designated by or under the authority of the United Nations Security Council under Chapter 7 of the Charter of the United Nations. Now, that news story was picked up from a range of sources and I'm not entirely convinced how verifiable they are, so I, I will curb my enthusiasm on that one until I see something official on the FATF website. I couldn't see anything official on the FATF, web, uh, FATF website when I checked, so it's a pinch of salt from me. In the UK, the government has published an amending regulation respecting high-risk countries and at the same time published updated advisory guidance on the same subject. As the guidance provides, the regulations, quote, amend the definition of high-risk in it will remove Schedule 3 7A containing the list of high-risk countries in the money laundering regulations. Instead of referring to a separate schedule, Regulation 33 3A will now define a high-risk country as a country named on either of the following lists published by the Financial Action Task Force as they have effect from time to time. As you'll know, the FATF updates these lists from time to time, publishes them. We sometimes follow the story in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, if there's nothing else more interesting happening. So those two lists are the high-risk jurisdictions subject to a call for action and jurisdictions under increased monitoring. It continues, in order to keep abreast of which countries are high-risk, relevant persons should now have to refer directly to lists published by the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, of jurisdictions under increased monitoring and high-risk jurisdictions subject to a call to action. These lists are updated three times a year on the final day of each FATF plenary meeting held every February, June and October. A link to the regulations and the advisory notice can be found in the podcast description. Now, the final money laundering story is a small one. It's very minor, but the amount of money involved certainly is not. A US, in the US, a former partner at a law firm has been sentenced to 10 years imprisonment for his part in a $400 million money laundering scheme generated from fraudulent cryptocurrency. In addition to his term of imprisonment, he's been ordered to forfeit, you may want to sit down for this one, $392,940,000. Uh, 
He's also been required to forfeit several bank accounts, a yacht, they always buy yachts, two Porsches and four properties. Link to the Department of Justice press release is in the podcast description. Now, there's a little bit of bribery and corruption news this week. We start in Singapore, where Subramaniam Iswaran, a member of the cabinet, has been charged with corruption. The allegation is that Iswaran received more than 160,000 Singaporean dollars, which is about 120,000 US dollars, worth of flights, hotel stays and Grand Prix tickets, tickets to West End musicals and football matches to promote business dealings of property entrepreneur Ong Beng Seng. In all, there are 27 charges levelled against Iswaran of, quote, obtaining gratification as a public servant, to which he's pleaded not guilty. We'll keep an eye on that one. And maybe I'll say something else uh, when the outcome is determined. To news now concerning the International Monetary Fund and countries in engagement with it for some reason or another. First, Ghana, which I think is having a bit of a rumble time at AFCON. But anyway, first, Ghana, which has been praised by the IMF for the action it has taken to increase transparency and reduce corruption through an IMF-funded initiative. Ghana, of course, has a $3 billion three years extended credit facility from the IMF, which is deigned to support its, or designed rather, to support its post-COVID economic recovery plan. Secondly, Pakistan, which hopes to secure further funding following the recent disbursement of $700 million from the IMF, has committed to further anti-corruption reforms to ensure receipt of additional disbursements. In other news, I suppose relating in a very mild manner to international responses to bribery and anti-corruption, the former Labour cabinet minister Peter Hayne, or Lord Hayne as he now is, has once again been calling for the establishment of an international anti-corruption court. This time he did so in a speech which he delivered at the University of Cape Town, South Africa. Hayne's commitment to an anti-corruption court is consistent and something which I've mentioned on previous episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. As I wandered through the archive, I do love that I have an archive now, I see that he gave various speeches and that he's written a number of articles which I reported in episodes 58, 70 and 72. If you want to go back and listen to those, his most recent speech is quite difficult to obtain from the traditional sources. Couldn't find it on the university website, couldn't find it on his website. But... The good news is it appears to have been published in full on the website of a newspaper. So I have linked that in the podcast description. Now, the final bit of bribery and anti-corruption news this week, and it's from a slightly odd source as well. It comes from the Vatican. Doesn't feature nearly enough in this podcast, I think. Well, it's announced the creation of a new whistleblowing procedure in order to adhere to the UN Convention Against Corruption, or the Merida Convention. Whistleblowers can report to a secure email address, which will apparently maintain confidentiality, and then be assessed by the Auditor General, so not the Inquisition. Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. Link to the press release from the Vatican website is available in the podcast description. It is in Italian. I did have to translate it. My Italian is a little weak. Market abuse. Now, the only piece of market abuse news this week concerns 
Joe Lewis, whose family trust controls ownership of Tottenham Hotspur Football Club. He's pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit securities fraud and two counts of securities fraud. I think there are other outstanding charges which may or may not be taken into account later. The guilty plea is part of a plea deal. Couldn't find much in the way of detail on the plea deal. I'm sure that will come out. Anyway, sentencing is set for the 28th of March this year. Now, to a bit of other financial crime news before we turn our attention to the cyber news this week. So, first of all, the Observer newspaper reported this week that His Majesty's Revenue and Customs, the HMRC, has still to use new powers given to it in the Criminal Finances Act 2017, which are designed to curb corporate tax evasion. The news came as a result of a Freedom of Information request by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and Tax Watch. The failure to prevent bribery, uh, sorry, failure to prevent tax evasion offence is in Part 3 of the 2017 Act, and it's modelled on Section 7 of the Bribery Act 2010, which of course is the failure to prevent bribery offence, which is a corporate offence. Now, what the statute does, what the 2017 statute does, is that it renders corporations criminally liable if individuals associated with it facilitate tax evasion by a tax taxpayer, either in the UK or overseas. The offence is therefore one of strict liability and operates irrespective of the knowledge of the corporation. However, the corporation has a defence if it's able to demonstrate that at the material time it had in place reasonable procedures to prevent individuals associated with it from facilitating tax evasion. Whether the publication of this news is likely to spur HMRC into action I very much doubt, but when compared with the pursuit of corporate bribery offenders, it seems remarkable that HMRC should have so few suspicions in relation to corporate evasion. In other news, Deloitte has collaborated with the Institute of International Finance to publish a paper on the current state of the global anti-financial crime framework. The paper provides, quote, updated reflections and recommendations on how the public and private sectors can continue collectively to improve effective outcomes in combating illicit financial flows whilst addressing evolving capabilities, risks and priorities. Link to the report is in the podcast description. And finally this week, it's been reported that the US Department of Justice may look again at the deferred prosecution agreement concerning Boeing after allegations of a fraudulent conduct concerning falsification of records uh, regarding, with respect to, the manufacture and manufacturing defects and the associated grounding of its 737 mo mo model following the blowout of that door in one of the planes. I think it was an Alaskan Airlines flight. Keep an eye on that one. be interesting to see how that goes. There has been an awful lot of criticism. I've stayed clear of the story, but there has been an awful lot of criticism of that TPA relating to Boeing because of the degree to which it has caused stress and strain for the families affected by various accidents. But anyway, DOG may be looking again at that, so worth thinking about. Oh, certainly worth keeping an eye on that one. Now, that's it for that. We'll end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast with a roundup of this week's cyber news. We start with a story con concerning Microsoft and news that emails of senior employees of the corporation 
have been compromised following a Russian-backed cyber attack. The attack is believed to have occurred in November 2023 and was discovered earlier this month. Now, do you remember when the greatest threat to the Olympics was doping and allied forms of cheating? Well, this week, the senior people at Interpol have identified cybercrime as the most prominent threat to the Paris Olympics, which get, get underway on the 26th of July this year. Reflecting on the news that the pandemic-related Tokyo Games suffered some 450 million cyber attacks, there is a sense in which, given the destabilised geopolitical system, this may cause further or even more cyber attacks than those which happened to the Tokyo Games. Russian athletes are likely to be banned from these games, and when banned from the Winter Games in South Korea in 2018, a malware attack on the cyber systems of the games, believed to have been sourced from Russia, was released. To be frank, I'm not entirely sure there's anything especially shocking in any of that news. Organisers of international events should always be aware that they remain the target from all forms of attack, whether it's a cyber attack or a terrorist attack or whatever. It's up to them to ensure that they have in place systems and controls which are sufficiently robust to ensure that there is no interruption to the event. Now, on the subject of Russian cyber hackers, first, a cyber attack on various websites of the Swedish government, as well as the Swedish Riksbank, the central bank, has been pinned on the Russians. And as already mentioned in the sanctions contact, the context, the Australian government, acting in coordination with the US and the UK governments, I mentioned this earlier, has designated Alexander Ermakov the first cyber-related cyber designation in Australia. They were under new powers passed last year. They, as I said earlier, regard him as prominent in his role in the Medibank hacking event where the personal records, personal and medical records of 9.7 million individuals were posted to the dark web. As the press release issued by the Australian government provides, quotes, this sanction makes it a criminal offence punishable by up to 10 years imprisonment and heavy fines to provide assets to Alexander Ermakov or to use or deal with his assets, including through cryptocurrency warrant wallets or ransomware payments. The link to that press release is in the podcast description. And finally, again, on attacks and government agencies and so on, it's been reported later on in the week that a number of government agencies in Ukraine have been forced offline after a significant attack on the country. The targets included the Postal Service and one of its energy companies. I don't suppose the finger-pointing will take very long at all. And finally this week. The National Cyber Security Centre in the UK has been extremely busy. It's published a blog post on the topic of cyber essentials. Are there any alternative standards? asking the question whether equivalent cybersecurity standards can deliver the same outcomes as the National Cybersecurity Centre's Cyber Essentials Scheme. In addition, it's also issued a reminder of the accentuated cyber threat which is posed by artificial intelligence. It's done this by issuing a report. As the press release says, AI is already being used in malicious cyber activity and will almost certainly increase the volume and impact of cyber attacks, including ransomware, in the near term. The report suggests that by lowering the barrier of entry to novice cyber criminals, 
hackers for hire, and hacktivists, AI enables relatively unskilled threat actors to carry out more effective access and information gathering operations. This enhanced access, combined with the improved targeting of victims afforded by AI, will contribute to the global ransomware threat in the next two years. Finally, 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 the UK government has issued enhanced guidelines for comment designed to help corporate leaders to increase cyber resilience, urging their prioritisation because of the business risk which it represents. The Department for Science, Innovation and Technology would like to hear your views by the 19th of March 2024. All of these links, the NCSC blog post, the NCSC report and press release on the impact of AI on cybercrime, and the UK government call for views on cyber governance codes of practice can all be found in the podcast description. Well, that is it for episode 92 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. You'll hear from me again next week, all being very well with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone. 